Don't push it, Elliot. I'm not coming out there until your eyes are closed. Okay, they're closed. Mama's gonna kill you. Okay, uh, swear it one more time. I have absolute... You have absolute power! Yes! Greetings fellow ramblers, and welcome back to Ramblin' and Amblin' Podcast, the podcast where we fly off on our bikes on a moonlit night and look down at the forest of movies from Amblin' Entertainment. I am one half of your hosts, Andrew Godian. And I'm the other half, Joshua Glenn. And joining us today is David of the Jurassic Collectibles YouTube channel. Welcome to the podcast, David. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. It's very nice to have you here. pleasure. And you, you joined us today for I, quite comfortably the biggest film that we've covered so far. So we've Excellent. only done uh, Continental Divide, the first one from Amblin Entertainment, Poltergeist, and then we've kicked it up a notch with this one, which is 1982's E.T. The Extraterrestrial, which is, of course, one of the most iconic movies of all time, one of the biggest box office hits of all time, and by loved by countless generations. But in case you don't know what it's all about, I'm going to hand over to Josh to tell you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Andrew. So, E.T., we open on an alien spaceship that's resting in the middle of the California, a forest in California. There are some aliens milling around gathering what appears to be plant specimens when they're disturbed by government agents who appear on the scene. In haste, they get in the ship and they leave, but they leave one little thing behind. E.T., or the alien that goes on to be known as E.T. later on. Uh, trapped and alone on a strange planet, he looks out at the skyline from the hill he's on, uh, and he disappears into the suburbs below. We then cut to a suburban household where we meet Elliot and his brother, who are children of recently divorced parents. They're playing Dungeons and Dragons or something along those lines, right? Some kind of role-playing I'm, I'm, I think it's game Dungeons type Dragons, thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Elliot is on the outside. He wants to be involved with his brother and his friends. They're sort of teasing him like all the brothers do. And they send him outside to get the pizza. Uh, so he goes to the bottom of the drive to collect the pizza. And on his way back, he notices something hiding in the tool shed. Uh, when he tries to investigate and shines a torch in there, this thing screams and flees. Elliot goes and tells his family, who don't believe him. So he decides to lure this thing back to the house via Reese's Pieces. Uh, he is able to do so by camping out in the garden uh, with his packet of Reese's Pieces. Uh, when the alien returns... Uh, approaches him and returns the Reese's Pieces to him, establishing himself as a benevolent, friendly presence. Uh, Elliot, excited at finding this new, this new creature, uh, takes him back in the house and hides him in the closet. He feigns illness at school the next day to stay home and bond with his new friend, uh, and he realises that he is a friendly little fella and a curious little fella, and they share some kind of unspoken 
telekinetic connection of some kind. He shares a secret with his brother and his sister upon their return, at which point E.T. establishes he is from out of space. Uh, the next day, when Elliot goes to school, he hides E.T. at home, but E.T. soon breaks out of the cupboard in which he's been kept and helps himself to the beers that are in the fridge and turns the TV on and has a day that's not dissimilar to a standard day for me in lockdown. I don't know what it's like for you, gentlemen. <laughs> but E.T. Drinking and TV. I felt very much uh, a connection with E.T. This watched through. <laughs> Uh, they, there, they then realise they've got much a much deeper connection than was initially thought uh, when E.T. Uh, e. is drinking at home. Uh, Elliot at school starts to display signs of being drunk as well. Uh, he does quite good drunk acting as well uh, during these scenes, I think. It's quite convincing for, a, for an 11-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Elliot gets drunk and he, he launches this, uh, this insurrection in the classroom, whereupon he releases the frogs that the classroom was about to dissect. Uh, and he, he kisses the girl that he fancies in a manner of two people kiss in the movie that E.T. is watching on the TV screen. Uh, so Elliot is brought home uh, after having been told off by the teachers and probably his mother. Uh, and when he gets back home, he regroups with his brother and his sister and E.T. in the bedroom. And E.T. tells the kids that he wants to contact his home. So he assembles this fun little communications device to contact his people back on his home planet. And the kids sneak him out on Halloween night to send this signal. Alas, when Elliot wakes up the next morning, E.T. is gone. Uh, Elliot is returned home to his aggrieved mother. And Elliot's brother, Michael, runs out to find E.T. Uh, and, and, and locates him uh, collapsed in a river, dying. Uh, as he returns E.T. back to the home, the government agents who've been monitoring the house throughout this whole scenario then make themselves known and invade the home and take over control of E.T. And that is when things start to take a turn for the worst. Mm. And that's where I shall leave you. Okay. I, 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 what my, my favourite tagline that I discovered on my journey into this was, uh, it sounds like the start of a song where it reads like, he is afraid, he is alone, he is three million light years from home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, David, I'm largely familiar with your work through Jurassic collectibles, but you're also one of the first people that uh, kind of put their hand up when we put out a tweet asking, uh, inviting people to kind of uh, say what films they'd like to join us for a discussion of. And ET was like up there on your oh, yeah, selection, definitely. And uh, so, so what is it about like ET for you that kind of makes it as like clearly you're a big Spielberg fan, a big yeah. Jurassic fan, but yeah, I think um. Well, I think Spielberg uh, is very good at kind of like childhood whimsy. I think uh, E.T. Is, is up there as being like a, a staple of, of childhood whimsy. And Amblin, I think Amblin is, as you know, in terms of all the films that Amblin has produced, has a kind of a sense of uh, childhood sort of POV, like you're seeing it from the perspective of a child and being part of a child's imagination. And I feel like E.T. is is a perfect example of that. And I've, I don't know, I, I think you, growing up with E.T. is um, is different to probably seeing it as an adult, I think. Because you kind of, it's very easy to buy into that world if you've seen it as a child and grown up with the film. Because you kind of, you relate a lot to the kids in that position. Um, and it introduces E.T. through kind of like the kind of fear, really. You fear E.T. at first. 
So that really draws you in as a child because you're, you're thinking, oh my goodness, what is this boogeyman? But then it turns into this, you know, benevolent creature, which is even better because it's, you know, it's, a, it's like a friend. It's like, you know, an imaginary friend that's real. So I think as, as, a, as a child, I really bought into that. And yeah, it's always been probably my second favourite Spielberg film um, next What's to Jurassic your... Park. That makes sense. I don't know why. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know why I even thought to ask for a second. Then what's it gonna be? <laughs> what could it possibly be? I'm a big Tintin fan. That would be a I... that would be a curveball plot twist. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And you guys remember when you first saw it? E. T. That's. I, I thought we'd probably touch upon this because it is such a childhood staple. And the short answer is no. I really, I can't remember a time in which I hadn't seen E.T. It's always been a film that I have had seen and known um, intimately. I don't remember seeing it for the first time. I really, I, I remember just it always being there and returning to it uh, very frequently. Likewise. It was just always there. It was just, it was a bit like, I can remember the first time I saw like Empire Strikes Back. I saw a clip of Yoda, I remember. Yeah. But with with E.T., it's one of those ones that I feel like I grew up with it always there. And it yeah. was always on TV. And yeah, I just remember yeah the, the, the BMXs and the, the kids riding on their BMXs. I just remember the appeal of it all. I just it, it just drew me yeah. in right away. So, yeah, it's just it feels like it, I've never had a first viewing of it, but I must have at some point. <laughs> What about you, Andy? Do you have a... Yeah, I, I have a really weird brain for things like this, so I can remember pretty much the first time I saw anything. Can you? I, wow. I, yeah, I have a very weird memory. For, I was I was four years old, and it was on BBC One, one Jesus, Christmas. Man. Um, wow. And it's funny, you brought, you bring up the kind of idea that um you enter into it initially, like, fearing everything that's going on, because it used to really scare me. Oh, it is scary. <laughs> it is really like, scary. The first, like like 20 minutes or so i was like genuinely terrified of this creepy little yeah. thing just like in the back garden and then and then you come around to like really caring about this creepy little thing from the garden like when suddenly <laughs> it's all all looking a bit go- like it's going a bit pear-shaped <laughs> so that is my distinct memory i i can really remember the kind of like opening shots in the forest like just really freaking me out when i was a kid i can really really remember that <laughs> it, it does start off the the as the credits unroll over a black background the, the music is quite ominous it begins on quite yeah. a literal ominous note in john yeah. williams score so it, it does it very much plays on that um otherworldliness and, and the fear of that unknown element yeah, and you you don't see the like full ET uh, anatomy like you know if it was if it was something that you weren't supposed to fear they'd usually show you know the yeah. face and you'd see that it's a benevolent creature but no all of the creatures are either obscured by trees or mm-hmm. you know fog or they're being slightly a red glow focus. a red glow so it, all <laughs> of these signs tell you that it's an ominous creature and you're not supposed to see it because it's scary. Yes. So it uses the language of kind of alien horror up until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the music is creepy inside the ship as well, with like yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, clear yeah, mushroom things. And stuff. Everything looks so weird inside that ship as oh, well. Oh, it does. <laughs> and there's like a tree with a face on it. And the, the, yeah. face, the face looks really grumpy and kind of weird. I re- it, it is just kind of one of those weird... If you watch it young, it's so kind of bizarre and abstract. You can't yeah. quite understand it. And that becomes scary because you don't understand it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's a thing when when you watch a film as a kid as well. There's a thing where because your sense of time is so different to what our sense of time is now, every film feels like a million years long, and yes. you kind of you, you live inside the film for what feels like weeks. And I think also the way that a kid watches a film is not it's not a traditional. You don't watch it thinking of it as a three act structure. You watch it and you fixate on particular details. Yeah, like the, the, the one I always think of. I used to watch the Aristocats as a kid an awful lot. And the, the, the creme de la Edgar is something that to this day is a, a, a palpable memory to me. I can almost taste that thing, you know, from watching it so much. And the, the, the bugs in The Lion King as well, stuff like that. I think, um, yeah, with E.T., a lot of those little sensory bits of um, little sensory details really stick in my head. And I think also I don't recall the second half until I was much, much older. I think, you know how with The Sound of Music, a lot of people only watch the first half of that for most of their life yeah. until they become adults. I don't think I saw Beyond E.T. attempting to phone home until I was a little bit older. I think I'd just seen the first relatively relatively cheery, non-mortality-facing Wow. Of E.T. Did you see the invasion of the house then, when they all come into the house? I, I, don't, I don't think I was. I was a real... I was a scaredy cat when I was a little Right. <laughs> to be honest, I was you know frightened of that as well so yeah. I don't think there's anything yeah. wrong with being frightened it's because they come in like yeah they come in like zombies that, they, that is really yeah, arms outstretched yeah and it's it, it's so abstract as well thinking but yeah. even now it's like what why did you do that to it's, <laughs> it's, it's, re- it's really nightmarish and strange it is that weird spaceman figure yeah. coming through the threshold yeah and they've got, NASA, <laughs> they've got NASA on their suits and it's like what, why is a spaceman fully dressed <laughs> yeah. up entering the house it doesn't make sense on any level as a child you, it, there's no logic to it so you, the abstract becomes scary and also then yeah. the combined sort of vader-esque breathing sound yeah, yeah. and just the, the the foil screen of the you know of the bubble of the mask and it's just like oh my god so scary <laughs> i think kind of like talking about its horror, horror elements mm. is actually quite a good segue for me to kind of bring in some of the uh development of it skillfully done got to, yeah good got segue yeah, <laughs> nailing this podcast business. He's, happy with that. He's proud of that one. Because um, I'm sure you both kind of have a familiarity with how ET came to be, um, with its kind of gestating from a horror script idea that Spielberg was developing after a lot of pressure from Columbia Pictures to bring out some kind of follow up to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Right. The kind of avenue he went. Uh, initially when he was kind of exploring this idea of a, a sci-fi horror film was he hired John Sayles who had uh, just come off of working with Joe Dante on Piranha and The Howling right? Uh, and I'm sure you're also familiar with John Sayles from being a Jurassic Park fan I was going to say his name is familiar in Jurassic Park lore. Yeah <laughs> he would go on to be one of the many writers to have a go at uh, the concept for Jurassic Park 4 before we got to Jurassic World so That's right, he's yeah. going to be someone that comes up a few times in this podcast I feel yeah. <laughs> and he's like he's a great writer in, in of himself he's like probably mo- most famous for his own writer director credits from uh, the brother from another planet which is kind of like riffing on, on this on the idea of E.T. and this um, alien being trying to being stuck on earth and trying to get home and uh you also made a great neo-western in the 90s called lone star i'd be remiss if i didn't 
plug that in this podcast because I love that movie. <laughs> I brought up Anytime Wild Wild West Sales in our good. first episode. You brought up Lone Star now. We've both got our Western yeah. pet projects. <laughs> We're balanced out now. <laughs> but uh, going back to his relationship with uh, the origins of E.T., the script that Spielberg got him to develop was called Night Skies, which uh, if you are interested, it's quite easy to find online. Uh, just type in the Night Sky screenplay and you can get it up on a Reddit thread very easily. That's what I did before that. And I'm I'm pretty sure you could probably find his Jurassic Park 4 script in a very similar, very similar fashion. Mm. And uh, this script that he wrote has been described by some as uh, straw dogs with aliens. And it, it, you do Jeez. very much <laughs> get that vibe <laughs> when you read it because it plays out like a home invasion uh, thriller that has aliens as the perpetrators of said invasion right and it kind of mixes mixes in uh horror horror elements with this kind of like western frontier uh set piece because it follows a family that live out on a farm and uh there's been a weird series of events in neighboring farms where all the cows have had their um intestines and organs ripped out and they've got weird circular holes in their heads and their skulls have been ripped open it's all is a, is a very grim script in some Jeez. parts of it when it comes to the violence <laughs> wow it, you very much get that roger corman school of gore coming in in a lot of the uh moments of violence within it and uh the the script that i've read i think was maybe like the first or second draft so it's not quite at a point where you feel like they were gonna go ahead and shoot this thing off of this but it's pretty damn close and the film itself did get really far in development to the point where rick baker the make makeup and special effects guru behind at that point he must have had an american werewolf in london under his belt um he had actually started to do designs for the aliens themselves featured in the script uh, all of which had have uh, their own unique personalities uh, chiefly the main leader who's this vicious alien called scar and also the more friendly buddy buddy on him in a bit <laughs> <laughs> um and like i think if you again if you if you google uh night skies rick baker you can find some of these designs and they do look quite similar to uh what the eventual design for E.T. ended up being. Right. And um, so it was getting... Oh, this project yeah. Getting that, that, real... Yeah, very much so. Have you just Googled just it? Just Googled yeah. it now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Didn't quite expect it to be um, so one-to-one. Yeah. Uh, it got it got some real traction to the point where Spielberg was thinking of maybe just producing it and getting Toby Hooper to direct it, mm-hmm. uh, funnily enough. Okay. Um, um, But it was on the set of Raiders of Lost Ark where he started to have a little bit of a change of heart when it came towards the idea of doing a horror movie of aliens because he was surrounded by explosions and Nazis all day and he was kind of feeling a little kind of kind of down a little more kind of downtrodden than he perhaps would have liked to have been feeling and it was on the set of Raiders of Lost Ark that um, Melissa Matheson who is the screenwriter for E.T. and was at that time the girlfriend of Harrison Ford. She was on the set and Spielberg read her this draft of the Night Skies John Sayles script they had. And uh, she really fell in love with the idea of um, Buddy, the uh, benevolent, friendly alien amongst all these 
aggressive ETs that were attacking the family farm. Uh, so a bit more on Buddy for you. Uh, the in the script, Buddy uh, forms a connection with the young su- young mute, mute son of the family at the Focus, and uh, the son who called Jaybird, who ultimately finds a way to communicate with his family through this connection with beings from another world. And that is the element that is most like what ends up kind of being transplanted over into the E.T. script and is clearly like that element that, uh, like I say, Matheson was so taken with. Mm. And she, her enthusiasm for this idea kind of convinced Spielberg. He was like, yeah, maybe I do want to go back to the more benevolent kind of aliens that you have at the end of Close Encounters of the Third Kind and not have them be this like symbol of horror. Uh, much to the anger of Rick Baker, who had already spent $70,000 developing these <laughs> prototypes. <laughs> so he decided not to join for the ride, which led to Carlo Ramboldi, the same um, visual mm-hmm. effects guy who had designed the aliens for Close Encounters to kind of come in and take over the design once Melissa Matheson uh, started to develop the screenplay based off this idea. And I should say the kind of idea of the terrorizing a family did get kind of split apart from Night Sky. So you end up having um, the, that element becoming poltergeist and then this other sweeter side coming through and becoming E.T. Uh, and at this point, Columbia was still attached to make it. But um, and to quote the president of the studio at the time, Frank Price, he said, he didn't want to make it anymore because it sounded like a wimpy Walt Disney movie. So <laughs> Universal then bought the script for a million dollars, which <laughs> led to a stipulation in the contract saying that Columbia could retain 5% of the profits of the eventual film that was being made due to the amount of time that they had spent developing it. And uh, the president <laughs> of the Worldwide Productions for Columbia during this period, uh, John P. John P. Veach, uh, <laughs> who also agreed with the, the president of the studio that they shouldn't make it, um, has been quoted as saying, I think that year we made more on E.T. than we did on any of our films. <laughs> <laughs> so you could, you, you could, so you could, if you wanted to, you could say that the price wasn't right. <laughs> the price being Columbia Pictures CEO, Frank Price. He, 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 the price wasn't Hello. The price wasn't right. Is this on? (laughs) Everyone's laughing, listening. Everyone's cracking up, listening. I can put in a bit of fake laughter for you if you like. We'll have the fake laughter and then you say, I can add the fake laughter. (laughs) Take out the bit that you said about the fake laughter. All uh, all this is staying in. Well, who was it at Universal Studios who was more receptive to Spielberg coming on board? It was his old pal, Sid Scheinberg, who offered Spielberg the the contract after he saw the Amblin short film. So he, he came, once again came came in to back up his boy and <laughs> let him get, his, get the version of the film that he wanted made. And uh, a thing that always, like, I know I should, I'll, I'll probably never stop being kind of like amazed at the kind of turnarounds that Spielberg has in, it, in his career. 
as I'm sure I'll continue to gush over in the future of this podcast, but it does boggle my mind that he released Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981 and then had E.T. out like pretty much exactly a year later, making like the two most defining films, two of the most defining films of his career, like within that short amount of time. I know he goes on to do it multiple times in his career, but I still find it mad. He just goes to show movies out. a few more Amblin films coming up in the next, you know, three years in, in, in reality, um, a couple of films from now that came about in similar circumstances too. And it, it does show, I think, that sometimes for all the, the planning you can do, sometimes the moment is just right and that the perfect correlation of things can align at the perfect time and create something perfect. Yeah. And I think also, I've noticed with Spielberg, there seems to be like um, a pattern with his films where he seems to kind of get, I mean, it seems like it happened later on in his career, like more in the 90s, but he sort of had like a film that he seemed more personally attached to. Mm. And then he had the like commercial studio film that they were more excited about than him. Um, Yeah. So for example, I think it was 97, was it 97 he did? Is it Saving Private Ryan? No, he did The Lost World, obviously, I should know that. He did The Lost World. <laughs> and then he also did... Amistad? Amistad, yeah. Year, so yeah. I would say Amistad was his film that year, and The Lost mm. World was the commercial oh, one. Oh, man, yeah. His heart um, does not seem to be in that one. <laughs> we'll get no, to that in due course. Absolutely. But... <laughs> and then I think the same thing happened... If you look at some of his films, the ones that come out close together, mm. you can kind of say that one's the commercial one. That one was the one he was mm-hmm. interested in. Same with Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Yeah. So I think they're separate by a year, but he kind of did them back to back. Jurassic Park is the commercial one that I'd say he's probably less attached to than Schindler's List. And Schindler's List, he was kind of making uh, and kind of being bothered by Jurassic Park's post-production while he was trying to make Schindler's List. So um, I think they do come in pairs mm. uh, through his career. Um, so maybe that was the case with this one. Maybe Raiders was the commercial one and E.T. was the personal one. Yeah, because like, also like, you read a lot of stories about his childhood because Spielberg also grew up in a divorced household and how he would have this imaginary friends that he would kind of talk to and like feel like he had a bit more of a supportive network with right. the kind of absence of a father figure. Gosh, and yeah. that so clearly... Yeah, yeah. What, shows in E.T. He said he that this imaginary friend was a friend who could be the brother he never had and the father that he didn't feel he had anymore, which is... Gosh. It, I mean, that's, that's yeah. so in here, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> which we'll get to shortly, I'm sure. But you and I had very similar thoughts regarding the brother character, didn't we, when watching this film? Yeah. <laughs> just a, a, like a text ex- exchange as I was re-watching it last <laughs> night, just going, this, he's such a good bro, he's eventually. Such eventually a good a boy, good yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very touching what a good bro he is. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So I think we should probably just like go right into what our kind of feelings of the film are in general, like coming at it from this kind of perspective of doing it for this podcast. Because like it'd been a it'd been a fair little while since I'd watched it. Mm. I don't know about you guys, but um, yeah, been, yeah, been a fair few years. Yeah, a good a good long while. Um, I've actually had it on the back in the background with my daughter quite a lot over the past like about year and a half ago she watched it on loop for ages so i had that and that was the 2002 which is something we haven't talked about but but the fact that they they did the re-release of the film and and 
you know, did loads of CGI extra shots or redid shots uh, in 2002, and that was the version she was watching. And I was trying to convince her to watch the original version, and she was like, <laughs> "No, no, no, this is this is the version I like now. I don't want to <laughs> watch." This is the one for me. <laughs> yeah, and I've actually gone back and compared the CGI one to the to the puppet. Yeah, and I'm like. Oh my goodness! Why did you re- why did you redo this? Like it, the, <laughs> the puppet, sure, like the movement looks a bit rough, but actually, in terms of how tactile it looks, yeah, and yeah. all the detail yeah. you can see on its face compared to the CGI one, it's like night and day. <laughs> like literally, yeah, it absolutely is so, so much better in the original puppet. So yeah, that kind of baffles me. And I think he's taken it out since for the for he the has, new, yeah for the new He's, he's even said that when he's asked uh, which version people should watch, he, he does point them towards the original. I, I feel like he, he he did get a lot of pushback for what he did to the special edition, and I feel like right. he listened to that. And it's, it's out of circulation now, so the copy that you've got is, is one of a finite amount. It's no longer hey, in it's print. It's a rare item yeah. now. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> hold on to that. It's funny because actually I thought I want to get the original VHS because I wasn't sure in the mm. new release how much they changed in terms of the score and the mix and stuff because there were scenes that I was like, I'm sure this used to be silent here and there were bits of like music over the top that felt like recycled bits from other parts of the film notably the bit i don't know if this is right but when he goes to the shed and he throws the ball and the ball comes back there's a bit of music over the top of that and i'm not sure if that was just like the sound of cicadas originally like there's just silence mm. it becomes silence but I, I don't know if there was a score i'm pretty over it or not. sure i'm pretty sure it was silent i i watched it last night and i'm trying to remember if there was but my, my impression is it, there was silence yeah i need but to go back and watch it because i was watching the blu-ray release i don't know which version you guys were watching yeah i was on the blu-ray as well yeah the one with with no vfx in it and 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 yeah, yeah. i had music over the top of that bit and i was like i don't remember there being music in this bit <laughs> so i don't know if they kind of tweaked it again you know as sometimes happens it's interesting how like coming back to these sort of films and how much like we say the kind of like you grew up with have them as have such yeah. a kind of constant thing in the background throughout your childhood yeah and how these little little things you will just pick up on if something's slightly slightly different to your kind of cultural memory of it yeah <laughs> I, I mean it might just be me it might just be because it's been so long uh, mm. Since I've seen the film, but yeah, I do, I I do prefer the original. But I want to kind oh, of get hold of an old absolutely. VHS and just yeah. watch that version, just to be absolutely sure that I'm watching the original. <laughs> original. Like I have no old copies tinkering. of Star Wars as well, the original Star Wars, and I'm holding yeah. on to those because I'm like, this is this is the originals. You know, they, they, you can't yeah. get hold of these anywhere now. They're so. next to impossible to track down. I luckily managed to. They they released the trilogy on DVD about 10 years ago. On oh, I've got those run. too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got those. I think we've all got those. <laughs> the little two pack that came with, the, yeah, with yeah. the new version and the original. Yeah, and they're like really yeah. like, like grainy. They're not great quality. But, but yeah, it's just nice take to have it. the original. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I want to pick up on that you mentioned, David, re- regarding um, feeling as if something had changed watching it again now compared to your memory of it. And I think when we, Andy and I, began this podcast, we talked about what Amblin was to us. And to me, it's kind of these artifacts, these, these storytelling artifacts that are passed down from generation to generation. Mm. And they have that, um, they have this inbuilt nostalgic magic, I think, that I don't know. It, it kind of it travels with you throughout your life, 
And mm. I think E.T. is the best example. Of, it's the most Amblin-esque film, literally because it is it mm. forms the logo, but also because it's it really, I think it does the Amblin thing the in its most pronounced way. And with anything that you watch when you're a kid, as you progress through time and you watch the thing again, you bring a different perspective and you bring all your life's experiences. And the film is never the same, even though it literally, even if it isn't digitally tweaked or remastered or anything, what you bring to it means that it's never the same when you watch it again. And watching E.T. again now, I can't think when I last watched it. It's definitely not since I've moved down here, which was five years ago. So, it, you know, not since maybe my late teens, early 20s, I've watched the film. And watching it again now, it hit in such a profoundly different way. It's always been a film that I found very, very emotionally affecting. I, one of my, the things I retained from one of my first viewings as a kid was um, the, 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 the sadness that you feel um, as, as, as their relationship kind of starts to dwindle. Um, mm. But watching it again now, I was just really struck by how raw the emotions are in the second half. And it really, it, it, it obviously, it, it ultimately does bring them back to a place where you can feel good and feel warm at the end of it. But it, I, I don't think it, it's not a, a cookie cutter happy ending. I think it's it's it's, just a, it's a film that that allows you to work through these raw emotions and leaves mm. you in a place where you understand them a little better. Mm. Do, yeah. Does does that make sense? I, yeah, like, you feel prepared to say goodbye at the end because you've yeah, kind exactly, of had the, exactly. you've kind of had like the false departure with with yeah. with ET's apparent, apparent death so then when when you have the real departure you feel prepared for it because you've kind of been yeah. through this once already um and also it's a happy departure this time so you, yeah yeah you get you get that sort of but yeah no it is intrinsically like almost like a tragic film really i mean it's it's quite sad you get chased off the planet basically <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, it is. It is quite sad in that way, but it's funny because the only people who really understand this creature are the children. Yeah. So yeah. you know, seeing that from a children's perspective, it's such a kind of like empowering film for them because you feel like, yeah, we get it. We want to protect this thing. We want to protect this creature. Whereas an adult is coming at it from a, we've got to, you know, do an autopsy on this creature and you know get it contained and you know. So it's it's it helps yeah. that it's from this child's perspective. Um, but yeah, it is. It's a very emotionally affecting film, and I think it's always stayed. I think its abstractness helps that. Like the fact that it's abstract in many ways helps that emotional quality because nightmares and dreams are abstract. Mm -hmm. So you know the fact that you've got these weird spacemen invading, you know, a very safe uh, environment. Um, you know, which as a kid is probably the most frightening thing you can think of. Then you've got like the bit when E.T. dies. I mean, death as a concept as a child is, is a huge thing to, to, to kind of tackle. Um, and you kind of see him there, you know, white at the bottom of the river. You know, it's like it's so stark and, and blunt. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just scary. Um, so, yeah, it just uh, it just full of um, pathos. And, and yeah, it's just really affecting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, in preparation for this, particularly from like reading the John Sayles script, I felt kind of compelled to watch, rewatch Close Encounters of the Third Kind, in like quite close proximity to going into my rewatch of ET. Mm. And I'm glad I did because like kind of going off on what you were saying about how this is so much about the way the children are feeling and the way 
they connect to E.T. It, I, I do really like the kind of way that you can look at E.T. as a spiritual follow-up still because it's kind of like um, picking up um, the pieces the pieces of the family left behind at the end of Close Encounters when mm. Richard Dreyfus has gone away from his family and his take goes spoilers for the end of Close Encounters but he goes up with the aliens <laughs> <laughs> and uh, E.T. kind of deals with the pieces that he's left behind because like the whole family dynamic is entirely the same it's it's the it's a single mother it's a two boys and a young girl yeah and you you see them that they there's clearly like a lot of uh frustration and anger amongst particularly in elliot um about his father leaving and how as you said at the top josh there's this uh desperation that he has to want to connect to his brother and his friends and be a part of their world and he's not being quite allowed that but uh et coming in suddenly he has this companion who does listen to him who doesn't speak down to him or doesn't disregard what he's saying he's quite literally hinging yeah hinging himself on every word that elliot is saying well elliot's got absolute power don't forget yes absolute (laughs) power (laughs) (laughs) most excellent uh, promise and then through that connection that he establishes with et he also um et becomes this um bonding agent as you were for him and his siblings like particularly with his brother um i i think to that scene in the garage when they're preparing for um going out on halloween uh, the the night before halloween and uh they're both busy trying to devise something for et but they find one of their dad's old shirts Mm. and they reminisce about a moment that they shared together with their father and laughing with their dad yeah and you get the sense that being with et is the first time that they're doing this yeah having this kind of relationship again yeah and uh and again i think it kind of plays off the way you see richard dreyfus in close encounters whenever he's with the kids he is kind of this goofy playmate he's not really much of a like stern father figure he's goofy and fun and and I feel like that is a void that is very much missing from Elliot, Michael, Michael and Gertie's life. And E.T. fills that kind of silly, goofy playmate vibe that and hole that they're definitely, all missing. Definitely. Mm. Uh, which why is why both the ending, the ending then works as a complete catharsis, catharsis of them having an actual moment to say goodbye to this figure that they've had in their life Mm. that they a a goodbye that they i feel like they clearly didn't get with their dad who's just run off with this in the context of the film he's run off with another woman to mexico Mexico. Mm. he Uh, hates mexico (laughs) (laughs) and the the poor mum is just trying to keep it i noticed actually when she's like reversing out of the of the house I love yeah. Dee Wallace. Oh, in this she, movie. she is she is just uh, outstanding in this movie. Yeah. Um, but to, to your point. Andy about the, the dad leaving and, and the kids having these unfulfilled emotions they haven't had a chance to work through given the sudden nature of his departure. I, I, I got the sense watching it this time that it's quite a recent thing. It's still they're still fresh wounds, yeah. they're still licking. And mm. 
Um, I, I, full disclosure as well, and I don't want to get too uh, uncomfortably personal, but I don't think I've watched this film since my own parents uh, separated. Um, so mm. a lot of the stuff to do with, I mean, I, I was an adult when it happened, so it wasn't quite the same for me as it was for Elliot, but a lot of the stuff with coming to terms with this home and this unit that you saw as, you know, um, steadfast and it gave you mm. the context for how you saw the world without suddenly changing, uh, fundamentally altering um, irreversibly, that it, it's a weird thing to process. And I suppose people will react in different ways to that. Like um, it affects the kids in different ways. Elliot seems to retract a little bit and, and, and lash out. There's that point where he mentions Mexico to his mother and Mike says to him, damn it, Elliot, why don't you grow up and think about how other people feel for a change? Mm. Um, you know, Mike, Mike has his friends and he kind of retreats into his friendship circle. Um, Gertie has her, she's the youngest. She kind of has the watchful eye of her mum, And Elliot kind of falls through the cracks. And yeah. I really felt what Elliot was feeling in a way that I hadn't, been aware of existing previously like the that kind of or, or no, an emotional numbness seems too dramatic but it, it's you're so blindsided by this thing that you do struggle to process it a little bit so his relationship with et obviously it's a film it's a metaphor for divorce that's kind of built into the dna but uh, watching it this time i've really felt that in a way that i hadn't felt before and <laughs> quite, quite the emotional reaction to the final half hour. I must tell you, <laughs> that that's very fair, man. And um, I'll I'll have to admit something here. Did, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was wondering. Um, when when uh, uh, I'll, I'll also pose the question to you, David, because um, when me and Josh are having a bit of back and forth in our prep for this, yeah, uh, he he asked me the question, um. Oh, at what point in ET do you start crying? Uh, and my my answer to that was, um, I've never cried at ET. Oh wow! And then cannot believe uh, that. <laughs> have you cried at ET, Dave? Uh, yeah, I think I think the ending is is pretty much. I think it has oh. moved me to tears. I think um, I'm trying to think if there's a bit earlier in the film. I think you know when he's found dead and and, yeah. and they're in the bathroom. I think I'm I'm oh, quite quite moved by that part as well, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think yeah, it's mainly the it's mainly the ending, just the the, the crescendo with the John yeah. Williams music at the end. It's like, it is, it, is ju- it just bludgeons you in, in, in a good way, but I mean, to, yeah. to me, it's in a way that I think is irresistible. P- pretty much from when they find ET in the river, right up until the end. The bit that always tips me over for some reason, the bit that tips me over is when they're being chased down the street by the feds and they're approaching the blockade in the middle of the road. Oh, yeah. And they finally take off and they fly over the police officers that have shotguns, not walkie-talkies. And that that particular moment is always the bit that makes me go go from fighting it back to... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know why that is. It's just such a satisfying moment. And it... Yeah, from that point on, was it just it just perfectly caps off all these beautiful dramatic ducks that it had lined up. Well, but... it's interesting that you highlight that point because that is the point where they make a physical departure from mm. from grown ups. Yes, that is, yeah, that, yeah. Is the, that is the point when they depart. You know, adults essentially, and yeah. and their and and the the issues, the emotional baggage yeah. that comes with them. So it's kind of like a very 
physical metaphor for that yeah. kind of departure uh, with E.T., who is this new friend who mm. is basically like a, you know, like a father figure and a, and a brother yeah. for, for Elliot. So, yeah, it's kind of like tearing away from it all and take, getting rid of that emotional baggage. Yeah. I suppose if you think about it, all adults do in a film, apart from the mother, all, all the adults do is let them down. And they do not, they're not conducive to the kids feeling the emotions they need to feel. So in order to get mm. that emotional catharsis, or e- not even emotional catharsis, because at, at my read of the end of the film is not Elliot um, being completely healed, but it's Elliot being in a position where he can start to fully process the fact that his dad has gone and start to grow and move on. Mm. Um and there's a complete lack of trust with, from the very beginning yeah. with, 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 with grown-ups. I mean, like, they, mm. you know, E.T.'s appearance, you can't let any adults know about E.T. from the get-go. Um, you know, there's no sense of trust with the adult world whatsoever. Um, and the mother is almost framed as one of the children, actually, because yeah. you don't, you see her full body, you know, you see her face, whereas, like, a lot of the adults, they show you know, authority figures, they show from like the waist down. So they show keys with his keys dangling down. Yeah. You, see his, you see his teacher in the classroom from the waist down. It's a bit like the kind of like Tom and Jerry-esque exactly. framing yeah. of adults. You see the, um, the police officer when he comes in to, when they think Elliot's run away. Yeah. yeah. You don't see his face at all. That's all right. I, I think it's interesting that you bring up keys because I, I found him quite a, the, the, I think this rewatch was the first time I've really kind of, found him super interesting yeah yeah, yeah. Right. i don't know what it was but <laughs> um it's because like this the whole film has built him up as you say you, he's you don't see his face at all mm. and the only moment when you do see his face is when he direct like does come to directly speak to elliot and he's been built up as this kind of the closest the film kind of has to an antagonist throughout the whole thing because yeah whenever him, him and his fellow government spooks are around we have this foreboding music coming in and it's largely in kind of like like you say these weird abstract images that mm. are largely worked throughout silhouette and he's listening then, in on that emotional moment you, you mentioned where they find the shirt yeah. his dad he's mm. like listening in on that which is really like yeah he's invading it's it really it's weird, weird. <laughs> yeah um but then you do see his face when the film kind of like reveals him to be this like quite caring and understanding character who who really places himself in Elliot's feet because there's, there's that quote that is like, I've been wishing for this since I was 10 years old and I'm glad he met you first. And that to me just feels like, like this is the first time I've kind of like really seen keys as the Spielberg surrogate in the film. Yeah. Cause like going back to these tales of Spielberg saying about this imaginary friend. And now here he is making this film where he can actually visualize that imaginary friend for this character. Mm. And uh, he is he is literally living an old childhood fantasy through the character of Elliot. And that, it's the first time it really kind of yeah. struck me with uh, the character of Keyes. Well, can I ask you guys a question on that? Because it's a little ambiguous. And I don't know if it's the film leaving it so intentionally or if it's my lack of understanding. Is the implication that Keyes as a kid just wanted there to be life in the universe? Or is it that these um the 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 scavenger folk um the the alien scavengers who collect um wildlife samples or whatever it is that they're doing is it that they do that on a regular basis and that this guy maybe caught a glimpse of them when Mm. he was a kid and he's wanted what elliot had ever since since. yeah (laughs) Uh, what do you think of that because i i wasn't sure if 
that was implicit or not. I've never thought of that, but you yeah. could be right. I mean, it's sort of like a, maybe it's an unspoken narrative, but it, that, that's, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. It feels uh, right for his character. Yeah, I, I'd say that could that, be a possibility, maybe. I like that reading. That he had the same, <laughs> maybe, he, maybe he even had the same experience as Elliot when he was a boy. Perhaps, maybe, yeah. And this is him grown up trying to find him again, uh, but it's not the same. Because maybe he didn't have a kind of a, it, it, maybe it came to him when, in a moment of need similar to Elliot without yeah. his father and now he's grown up he doesn't need that so he's kind of like I'm glad it's you because you need it I don't know yeah. um, but I do wonder like do you, does he have any kind of um, like father replacement status at the end for you like is he the, the stepfather like I kind yeah. of feel like at the end he's framed a bit that way but not really yeah they don't really show any always... romance or anything but you're right because he's always shot with um with D. Wallace. D. Wallace at yeah. the end yeah but I I always got that uh feeling when I was young certainly when I was younger watching it I would always get that feeling of like Oh, they're probably going to get together now. Just <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, in the yeah. blank. It's implied, but so implied that it's, there's almost no trace of it. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to prove it. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, that's the, be- the beautiful thing is that the, the film doesn't have an epilogue that kind of says, here's what everyone did afterwards. It, it, yeah, leaves it. it has the perfect final shot. And it, the final shot is Elliot looking up at the sky, which is the reverse shot of the opening, which is yeah. the sky looking down on the earth. So it, ah, it's perfect cool. symmetry in that sense. Gorgeous. But it just it, kind it, of... It, Sorry, Andy. No, no, you you carry on. I've I've not I've not got anything <laughs> to add to that. You keep going. Just, just, just that it's gorgeous. No, but it, it it does reiterate that it is the story of Elliot and his uh, his emotional journey to, to getting to that place where he can he understands his emotions. He understands the emotions of others, as was set up by Mike earlier on in the film. And it's um man, it hit real hard this time, guys. <laughs> it's so much harder than normally. But you, what good. you've been skirting, Andy is the question of whether or not you cried this time. Oh, um, I'm, I'm sorry to report I did not cry this time. <laughs> oh, so I still, <laughs> still remain to... And I, I have not cried at E.T. Uh, I, wow. I've gotten to the ripe old age of in my late 20s and I still have not cried at E.T. Maybe wow. one day, but it has it, the day has not yet come. <laughs> um, keep, keep your eyes peeled for a Twitter poll where we ask the question, is it weird that Andy has not cried at E.T.? <laughs> I imagine most people are going to say, yeah. <laughs> there's also, while we're on the, the bit of the ending, there's, all, there's also the rainbow, which, mm. and, yes. which has a lot of kind of... Um, like biblical symbolism for like the you know that was like god's promise to noah that you know there wasn't going to be any more floods and the fact that the et ship is like an ark because it carries all of the the flora and fauna from the planet like so i wonder what spielberg was trying to say there was he trying to promise that he would never be alone again or you know i don't know what it is but it's just like the rain the choice of the rainbow at the end is like yeah it's always like, oh, why did you choose rainbow? Like, <laughs> first time, this this time as well is the first time I noticed that Elliot has rainbow blinds in his room, which I oh wow didn't know that. Like play, That's amazing. Yeah, playing off that kind of similar idea, and and there, like there is quite a lot of religious evocation throughout it, like particularly when there's a there's a resurrection at the start. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, space cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he even has the, the 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 like shawl, the sort of 
you know, Jesus yeah. sort of shawl over him, you know, sort of like, uh, or Mary sort of shawl over him when he's in the basket. I don't know. Yeah. Was there a some symbolism That's there? <laughs> and like kind of uh, going back to this kind of like, you talk about the big moment for you is when like there is that big lift off from the cars over the police cars. I think, uh, and we've kind of skirted around his contribution throughout our discussion here. But um, where where does this kind of rank for you guys in your kind of personal John Williams um, scores? Because it it's it's pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 yeah. I do love these stories of like when they they were making it, and Williams was kind of like struggling to figure out how to make some of these themes work, and particularly in this final act. And Spielberg just basically went and told him, just conduct as you would a concert and I'll edit around it. And I think that really helps play Paid to, yeah. the, like you say, the kind of real catharsis strength of those final 15, 20 minutes, yeah. which is just the scores going completely, it's just a, yeah. is accompanying it completely, like every second of it. And it, it, it's that, particularly the last 15, 20 minutes is, personally for me, so much like, if not maybe the best film bit of film score that John Williams has ever produced. Yeah. Uh, I, and, and I'm sure like Jurassic Park is up there, David, don't worry. I think the score is just fantastic. The, the, one of my favorite parts is when they break away from, from um, just before they, they take off, when they break away from the facility and meet up with their friends at the park and then and oh, then the man. score comes in there like do 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 yeah. with all the violins. Yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's so cool. You, you're 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 so excited for this yeah, bunch yeah. of kids who are on BMXs <laughs> going at full pace. You're like, yeah, I want to be one of those, and I, I want to be there. We're yeah. making a break for it. It's so kind of rebellious and anti-authority. Yeah, sure. um, everything about it is so cool, and the music that accompanies that moment in particular is always. Yeah, I, 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 I quite often listen to, if I'm listening to the E.T. score, I listen to that track uh, when they make a yeah, break Yeah, me too. Um, so me that's too. probably my favourite one out of the whole film. Oh my God, yeah. And it, it performs, it reminded me a little bit of um, another emotionally heavy uh, family film, Toy Story 3, when they are on the, on the sort of the, the facing down death as they're going towards oh, the yeah. incinerator. And you're so emotionally fraught by it and then you get that release of when the spoilers for Toy Story 3 you get the release of when the aliens come with the pickup truck thingy and and pick them up out of the um our vocabulary is failing me today. You know, they're, the, they're saved by the aliens. It's in a comical way. You get the comical the furnace. Is it the furnace? The big furnace. Yeah, from the, saved from the furnace. And I think this yeah. part of the film forms a similar function. You have that really heavy emotional bit when they're both dying and separating. And then once E.T. is coming back, then it kind of builds and builds and builds to the moment where they make the break for it, like you say, David. And the score just goes hog wild. And it's so much fun. And you yeah. have that sugar rush that you need to pull you out of that real tough emotional terrain you've just had and so much of that is done by score and also something to note as well is 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 the bit when elliot's saying goodbye to et when it's the films that it's real emotional Mm. um it's it's roughest point there's no score it goes for a while for that whole period when et's dying it's scoreless for a time wow 
and then John Williams comes back in, I think, around about the time that the heart, you see his heart um, shining out of his container. I think that's when the score starts to weave back in again. Um, man. I, I think... That Williams guy. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. <laughs> it's funny that he used the silence there, though, because Spielberg has a habit of using silence when he wants it to be most literal, so... I mean, thinking about my favourite film, Jurassic Park, in the T-Rex road attack, he there's no music there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's probably the part where it's most literal, terrifying. And it's the same with that part in E.T. You need the silence to just kind of hear those sort of diegetic sounds of the breathing and, and just the heartbeats and just like, yeah. And it, it's, that makes it most... You, can, you kind of lean in because you're like, yeah. where's, where's the music gone? What's going on? <laughs> And it so, forces um, you to bask in those emotions too. You don't get the the relief and the release no. that music gives you. You've got to you've got to sit and stew in those emotions. Absolutely, is, and with yeah. those long Spielbergian takes as well, you're just yeah. like your eyes are like going dry. You just yeah, <laughs> just absolutely. In the moment. <laughs> but yeah, uh, getting getting ready for the uh, tears. You're getting getting your welling up, yeah, keeping your I'm eyes ready. dry. You're storing up that. that oh boy, it's gonna ending. happen soon. <laughs> Not if you're the dried up, dried up, emotionless husk. Of me. <laughs> You'll cry out of you. We've got land before time coming I'm, at some point. I actually, yeah, I, I'm a. I'll find my cry moments. <laughs> you'll, you'll have your cry. Uh, I think we'll also be remiss again. We've talked a lot about the kind of the way that a lot of the shots are composed in this, from the kind of the silhouetting, and have to give give credit where it's due to. Um, the cinematographer of the film, Alan, Alan Davio, who uh, this is his first time working with Spielberg again since shooting the Amblin short film back in the 60s. And uh, this this was also his first feature film credit and he gets an Oscar nomination straight out. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, some of the shots in this are absolutely breathtaking. Like there's the one where um, Elliot first kind of goes up to the like the peak of like that mountainous area near his home, and he looks over yeah. the kind of suburbs, and you see just his bike going up, and him like that's amazing that shot, and I I, I love the, the setting actually. It's sort of like a very yeah. sort of, um like slice of eighties American suburbia when America was really booming, and they were building houses everywhere, and you've got these you know, wooden timber structures of the houses that they're all racing around in in their BMXs. And it's just it's just very much of that time. Like, you know, it's just it's just a yeah, it's just a very characterful backdrop, I think. Spielberg yeah. always does some very nice suburban settings, doesn't he? Like very sort of homing homely feel, but also very distinctive. Which I think it's quite interesting, like this coming up, like straight off the back of the kind of the very similar suburban environment that we saw in Poltergeist. Yeah, I was going to say it does remind me of Poltergeist very much. The, I don't know if they looks set very in the similar same place, but it, it's very eerily close. Yeah. It must... <laughs> well, this is yeah. this is San Some, Fernando somewhere Valley. in Northern California. Yeah, I wonder if. Yeah, um, yeah. it might well. But be. it's just the way they caught those houses being built and used them as a backdrop. It's like yeah, you know, that, I mean, they they didn't pay for that. I'm assuming that was just kind of coincidental i'm imagining i don't know maybe location scouting they were like hold those buildings for a minute that looks great we want to film that 
So yeah, it's the same with like the the forests as well, which I think is like largely on like the outskirts of Culver City in California, mm. and California, and just right. like ke- keeping that like um, choice to shoot from the child eyes perspective so consistent throughout and having this forest also kind of look beautiful and up, like almost otherworldly just because like some of the trees and that make up this landscape are so huge and so kind of cut up and a bit warped that it kind of yeah it feels it feels like quite an apt environment that et wants to run to to be able to yeah. be able to have the capability to go home they look like redwood trees, are they Californian redwoods? I think, yeah. they're really tall, aren't they? They're really tall, really it's, tall. It's a, apparently yeah. it's a redwood forest near Crescent City in Northern California, which is a, a yeah, good eye, David. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's just there's, there's a shot at the beginning where it looks up at the sky and it kind of the camera twists and you see up the branches of the trees. And um, we happen to have a redwood near us in, in Bristol and I, I just kind of recognise the, the tree. And, yeah, it's huge. But yeah, that's cool. Very characterful. I think he uses redwoods in um, in the Lost World as well. I think there's redwood trees. He does, yeah. Well, so he loves his redwoods. He loves his redwoods. <laughs> <laughs> um, something else I think would be remiss to not bring up is the fact that this film contains. I, I, I know I'm prone to hyperbole, but I do think that it has perhaps two of the finest child performances of all time in this movie. Mm. In Henry Henry Thomas. Let's talk about Henry Thomas for a second because the some of the, the some of the the heavy lifting he has to do, the the range he has to display, is is it's really quite astounding. I love there's that. I'm not going to do it too close to the mic, but, but when he goes ah that you know you know when when he's excited he goes yeah, ah that is so <laughs> effective. That noise is so effective. It gets you excited. It gets you teary when you need to be. Yeah, and you can go from that kind of boundless joy to when he's say when he can barely speak, when his voice is croaking, when he's saying goodbye to ET, that range for an eleven-year-old kid yeah, is absolutely it's very, very effortless. Yeah, and, and, and it feels well, very unique. Yeah, like, who else does that at half thing? Oh, like, you'd know that's him if you heard yeah. that sound. It just um, doesn't. Yeah. It, it all feels so natural. His relationship with his brother Michael Robert McNaughton, who is also fantastic. I a yeah. little bit older, uh, obviously. But just so, like Andy and I were saying over text, just such a good big brother, such a good boy. So, so eventually so supportive. Yeah. Backs him 100% by the end. <laughs> and then, of course, you've got uh, like little four-year-old Drew Barrymore as Gertie, who is just the most adorable kid, incredible comic timing, impeccable comic timing. Yeah. Um, They've all and, got wonderful moments, this, haven't they? Yeah. They've got brilliant they moments. Do. Like, I think of his older brother on the bus when everyone's just like, when he's on <laughs> yeah. the way and he's just found out about him oh, too. Yeah. Is it? I think he's found out about ET by that point, and he's on the bus, and everyone's just chucking paper at each other, and it's yeah. just him looking kind of like really despair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. It's so good. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. That's how you'd be if you found out. <laughs> it's amazing. You know? If you're just on the way to school, you'd be like really worried about it. Yeah. Um, what you, yeah. 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 I I was just gonna say I think a lot of the kind of like really lovely kind of like genuine child performance does come from both that's the decision to shoot the whole thing chronologically so they do have this bond grow and develop to that point of catharsis and also uh, Melissa Matheson's script is just filled with love like perfect little kind of like child child observations of the world like the line that really like got me giggling when I was watching it 
<laughs> the other day was when they've nipped the van and <laughs> Michael's driving it and he's like, what way is it? What way is it to get to this street? And so, so, and Elliot's just like, I don't know streets. Mum always drives me. <laughs> just little moments oh, like that, which yeah. just bring in such like a perfect human yeah. emotion and humor to it all that you can really relate to. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that we, we, we talked briefly in the uh, Belushi episode about how Spielberg is so good at these moments of natural humor. Uh, which he weaved into, it's, it's there in Jaws, it's there in Close Encounters, it's really there here as well. Um, and there's just such an, an, a natural rhythm to their pitter-patter, there's such an, a natural chemistry, and like you say, the human observations, it's, it just feels so unforced and so real. Mm. Um, he also had mm-hmm. a habit of like layering up dialogue in his films at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And it's like, basically, if, if you watch the film first time, none of those conversations is kind of like, clear you can't make out what you might be able to hear a few words like in close encounters he does it a lot but if you go back and rewatch the films and you can kind of pass out what people are saying and actually the conversations each one is interesting and funny and sometimes really humor and he, he's obviously trying to layer in reality which is people would talk over the top of each other in real life in, in that sort of intense situation so, and yeah, it's really clever how he does that. He's, he's very good at adding humanity to his films. Yeah. Like, I do think, like, E.T. is, like... It's not my favourite Spielberg film. I think I would probably put Jaws, Jurassic, and Close Encounters just slightly above it. But mm. um, I think it's the kind of, like, purest distillation of Spielberg as, like, a movie magician yeah. because it yeah. is this... Yes. And particularly for something that can kind of that does encompass every can for every age group and every generation, I, I I do think there's it's hard hard for any other film in his filmography or any other film that's kind of made in the in the vein of E.T. that just has never quite never quite recaptured it. Yeah. At all. Like I don't think anything's really quite come close to that same sort of simple simple yet so complex child child fantasy view of like an extraordinary situation that's made to feel so very real at the same yeah. time it, it's the best it's the best version of this kind of thing it's the best that this kind of thing could ever be and i suppose everything it's, it's been so influential and it's kind of defined amblin as a brand to the point that everything that came after it and has tried to you know mimic it and try to emulate it is doing so in a way that tries to reverse engineer it which is counter to what E.T. does so well, which is so intuitive and so yeah. natural. Organic. Yeah, yeah, and it's just... And, so, and, like, and so raw, yeah. like you, you're saying. And, and yeah, very raw. I think all, all the, the trilogy of, of his initial blockbusters, 1941 aside, Jaws, Close Encounters and this, they're just dripping with messy, um, uncontained, unrefined human behaviour. And it really does feel like you're watching real lives in these fantastical situations. In a, in a way that I don't think any of... That's why Spielberg's films endure like they do, I think, because he does... He has that absolute mastery of visual cinematic storytelling, but he also is a really good director of actors and quite bold, like you said, David, the overlapping dialogue and some of his, his, his choices with performance are just incredibly of a piece with his craft, I suppose. And, and mm. you know... It, that's intuitive. He, he, also, he also feels like he kind of um, lets people go, like he lets the actors mm. go a bit. Yeah. And, and probably I can see a lot of improv and stuff where he's he's shot it on the day 
and maybe he's done one or two takes and then someone does something unpredictable and he's like, I love that. But he, he sees that while he's filming and that's his kind of skill. He's like, that's, that's even better than what we could have written. So let's record that. Let's do that a few takes. And then obviously, you know, as films were back then, quite a lot of the dialogue's dubbed over. So you get a feeling sometimes the dialogue's dubbed over, but the moment that he's caught on film is this really nice human yeah. moment because it feels yeah. like it, it's it's not written. Yeah, um, so yeah. I think he he very he's very good at assessing when when humanity's coming through and and prioritizes that above yeah. all else. So I think that's why his films feel so natural. Um, you know, the mistakes, the happy mistakes that get in yeah. there are the ones that 100%. he saves. Yeah, hundred percent. And Jurassic Park as well is a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots of little natural moments that you're like, how the hell did you come up with yeah. that? Like, um, <laughs> yeah, which is you kind of think, well, either you didn't or you you practiced it and found some improv moments yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those natural human parts make his films really... Um, and that's part of the whimsy of his films as well. When, like when I say dreamlike, when you have a dream, you kind of like you have like bits of reality drift in and out, and conversations that you might have had, and and that's what it, his films feel like. They feel like natural snippets of, of reality, rather than kind of scripted moments that feel really predictable and like a rhythmic thing. They're not rhythmic. They don't follow a rhythm whatsoever. So um, I think that's why his films are so successful. Yeah, 100%. and I think like kind of going. On that, I think that strength is why so many of his films, and particularly E.T., can hold up so well, like, coming on to, like, what, 40 years later. Um, Gosh, like, tic- yes. <laughs> 40 years. I did actually like, think that while I was watching it. I was like, in two years' time, this is going to be 40 years old. I was like, yeah. my goodness, that is mental. And, like, it's so many big properties like this you know just end up being slightly having have, have some of the kind of shine dulled either by kind of like a over overexposure that like have, have sometimes threatened et but et's been such in that spotlight still and still doesn't really it still hasn't really had anything removed from it as a result no right? not at all i i i think i i remain glad that they didn't go ahead with the sequel because I do oh. think that would have <laughs> can we, can we... somewhat robbed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I did, yeah, I did look a little bit look into the sequel. Uh, shall we just talk about the, <laughs> the proposed uh, plot of the sequel? <laughs> well, please do. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I remember it being preposterous. Et two nocturnal fears, uh, in which Elliot <laughs> and his friends are kidnapped by evil aliens. And attempts to contact E.T. for help uh, somehow. <laughs> oh, I always hate it when they introduce new aliens into an alien. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right. It's yeah. like you've got one good alien. Just, you know, <laughs> don't, it, it, one alien's chance enough, but having two aliens is just too preposterous. It's just they did it with Independence Day two, and it never, never worked. Yeah, no, it was just not having that again. I really, li- really like the idea that like. Universal just asked him to pitch one and he just went in with the idea yeah. of I'll just pitch the worst sounding thing. <laughs> <laughs> really put him off. <laughs> yeah. Good idea. But like I and you should say that one little element of the kind of legacy that may have that like in any in some way I think it just adds to the endearing nature of its legacy is the um 
absolute dumpster pile of a video game that was made. <laughs> the <laughs> worst video Atari. game of all time. <laughs> it's got a huge legacy as well. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, like... E- E.T., the most successful film of all time, you'd think it'd be one of the biggest video games of all time, but, like, they rushed this game out and it literally sunk Atari. (laughs) One guy made it, wasn't it? It was pretty much one guy. Yeah. (laughs) Which is is amazing in itself, even if it's the worst game imaginable. That's still impressive, but got full control over the game. (laughs) Have either of you two played it? At all? No, I haven't. No, I would love to. No, no, never. No, no. Yeah, it's one of it's one of the ones I'd like to play just to see how bad it is. (laughs) I've just got like this, like this image in my head of like documentaries about it of just these uh, (laughs) big uh, tractors just pushing in piles of cartridges into a deep pit and burying it. (laughs) It's such an image I have in my head associated with the legacy of E.T. It's been covered quite a lot, hasn't it? In lots of documentaries it's been covered. And they didn't think it was real for ages. They didn't think it existed. And then someone actually found the 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 buried pile of (laughs) E.T. Which is just like an urban myth coming real. It's just so bizarre. I want to uh, see that movie of the guy who discovered the pile of Atari cartridges. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've got to watch it. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, and, um, and also, um, one other thing I didn't think we mentioned was um, the, the inclusion of Harrison Ford. Um, yeah, yeah. Because he was going to be in the film. Am, am I right in thinking he was going to be the principal? That's right, yeah. 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 We get pulled off to see. And in a way, I kind of feel like that's a good cut. Because yes. the, the idea yeah, of you going off cut. to the principal is, is potent enough, I think. And and you and you don't get an answer. You just see him being pulled away. You know he's going to the principal. You don't need to see it, you know? So, even yeah. uh, even in the 2002 special edition, Spielberg decided to not include it because he felt That's it would right. change. I think he said it would change the DNA of the film or something along those lines. It, it would be very distracting. It would. It would be very distracting. Even if you don't see his face, I think it would. Because I even think um, Peter Coyote sounds quite a bit like Harrison Ford as it stands. Yeah. <laughs> so you might think it's the principal who's actually listening into his conversation yeah. with his older brother. <laughs> really a whole other film altogether. But, but yeah, I think. Um, did, did do you actually? I haven't seen the deleted scene in ages, but do you. Do you I, is it out there? You don't see his face. Oh, you yeah, don't see it's his on face. The, okay, I'm, so they use the same thing. You don't technique. see his face. Okay. Yeah, it, it it's largely from behind the principal's It's so desk. strange that when you think about that now, it. watching it as an adult, the whole not showing adult thing mm-hmm. is very peculiar. But it's like, yeah, it's only as an adult watching it that you feel this is really unsettling. Um, but as a child, <laughs> you just kind of accept it and you're in the, the children's yeah. world. So there's no need to focus on that. Um, yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Strange, it is. strange device. <laughs> I love it. I think it works so well yeah. for it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the yeah. Tex Avery approach. Yeah, it is, literally. Kind of going off on this, like, little pieces around E.T. as well. Did Have any of you gone on the theme park? Ride? I'm so I, I pleased you asked this. Yes. <laughs> oh, you will I it. feel like this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this must have been one of the first, like, Amblin theme park rides as well, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. I, I mean, both, I haven't looked that up. I've got. I've not been on it. Uh, no, I like I was in Florida in like 2001, but we never went to Universal. We just did the Disney park. Yeah, 
Uh, no, there was... something I rue to this day. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those experiential things. Like the, the, there's the Amity Island Jaws ride. I think is that. I think that's still there in Universal Studios Florida. At LA. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if it's up and running anymore. Uh, well, at least when I went there in 2014, I don't think it was. It was actually up and running at the time. Maybe it is now. But I think I thought they closed it. Yeah, and they, they, they may and well they have. destroy the boat as well or something really horrible? <laughs> I don't know. The, the, oh, the boat used to be there, the actual original boat, and I'm not sure if that ended up being destroyed or something tragic happened to it. I've got to read up on that. But yeah, I think Spielberg was pretty gutted about that. It's a great ride, but I, I really miss so those the, experiential rides. The, the, there was Which which one did you go on, Josh? It was the E.T. Adventure that ride at Universal Studios, Florida. Florida. It's, that, yeah. I think that that one's still going. I think isn't uh, it? Yeah, that one's still operating. That wow. one's still operating. The That's California amazing. one isn't. When did when did it open in the late eighties or something? Was it in nineteen ninety? Apparently. Oh right. Okay. Cool. So cool. a little a little later down the line. <laughs> and what was it like, Josh? Was it kind of like a, a big screen with a pre-recorded film, and you're kind of you're moving along with a. Like a, a rig or something? How, how, what, well, how does it play out the ride? It's kind of it's it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing. It's um you you're on a bike, you're on a little bike, and you're riding along with ET through the trees, and you're being pulled on this on this rail through the trees with a little basket in front of you. And right. Then I think at the very start, as you're queuing up, you put in your name. So at the very very end, when you finally get ET, and it takes you through all these sets through the forest up into space, up into the spaceship, back to his people. Uh, you physically return him to his people by yourself. And at the end, right. he thanks you. Thank you, Joshua. <laughs> oh, what's Did he actually say your name? Your name. <laughs> it's, yeah, in, in one of those um, uh, eat up Martha kind of uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> early right. 90s. <laughs> How does that work then? Is it just, just you as a single person going on the ride? Yeah, it is. Multiple people get on this same bike. They're, they're, they're like, individual bikes. Style. They're individual bikes that you um, you ride one apiece. Uh, I can't, I, I'm trying to, let me see if I can find a picture. I'm trying to get my head around the logistics because it's a memory that I've got from about 10 or so years ago. E.T. Yeah, the idea that's fascinating is just you on a bike. It is. It, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Everyone keeping outside for miles. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, it's one night at a time. It takes two hours. And then it's the next they, they go pretty Josh fast. taking forever. <laughs> Maybe I'm conflating. To, the, the, the pictures that I'm finding are, it's like a, a crop of bikes. Like you, you sit with a bunch of people. On bikes. Right, okay. on, on bikes. That makes no sense. On a platform, right. so there's like four, r- rows like, like of four people Like you're the ga- whole gang, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose oh, yeah, so. Yeah, that makes sense. With a basket in it. So maybe the name thing, maybe I maybe I made the name thing up then. This is what and I'm talking about with memory. Is it video footage or is it like physical models going it's past f- you? Physical models, it's screens and physical models that, 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 uh, that go past you. It's like um, sort of the Pirates of the Caribbean style approach. Right, You're going yeah, through yeah, these yeah, living yeah. sets. It's very cool. In, in, in... I'm very, I'm very excited to learn it's still operating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's still a, <laughs> There's still a chance. Still a chance. When the world opens back up, I'll meet you in the line. <laughs> <laughs> Classic park ride first, obviously. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and we'll do them all. Well, something I'm, we'll I'm just... hoping the Jurassic Park one's still there, actually. Well, I'm I think sure. that that expanded. I'm sure because there, there was the one that was the the log flume ride. Then there was a pterodactyl. A flying kind of gentle flying above the ground ride 
And I think there was another one added, I think, when the Jurassic World I think I'm right in thinking that, yeah, I think it's all been restyled like Jurassic mm. World. Yeah. So yeah. it's not okay, like... The, but then now you, you've got Harry Potter, yeah. the Wizarding World is, is just across the uh, across the lot from it now in the right. Universal Studios. There's, yeah, there's this... Like, it's, yeah, but the one, one thing that Andy will talk about in a couple of weeks, a couple of episodes' time is that the, the the late great Back to the Future ride? Unfortunately, has uh, yeah, that's gone. <laughs> been replaced no. by The Simpsons. Yeah, that was a really cool as well. There, there yeah, was the old God, Terminator is... ride as well, wasn't there? Terminator three D back in the day. Something like yeah, Voyage Through Time was it called? Something like that. And it that's was an, right. it was officially canon as well. It was it was an official yeah. sequel to yeah, Judgment it's on Day. Cameron Brody yeah. directed it. <laughs> Terminator yes. two action. You can actually watch that thing. Um, but yeah, it's a really weird it's one. It's got some yeah. really dodgy CGI in it. It's yeah. lovely. <laughs> oh, man. But I quite like it because you see a sky, you actually see Skynet's base in the future, which was amazing. And it was like a pyramidal structure, which was a really I, cool I, idea. I'm getting a getting a vague memory of this from the DVD as well. I, I kind of, I'm glad that Amblin Films have got this re- rich vein of history of theme park attractions (laughs) i kind of forgot about that until like looking into et again i was like oh yeah theme park right we could do a whole episode on uh on amblin rides on theme park rides yeah oh absolutely yeah that's a good idea good show that if we ever get the the, the podcasting cachet to 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 warrant bonus episodes maybe Yeah, and just get people to fund our trips. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you both on the bikes now holding up the queues. Like, Thank yeah, we're you. From the ET ride, and we're just going past some trees. They're really real looking, man. It's brilliant. <laughs> we're sorry this isn't a visual medium, Zeke. <laughs> and then at the end, it's like, Thank you. Rumbling the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, this is going to happen day. one day, for one sure. Yeah, <laughs> Alrighty, gang. Unless there's any other points you guys wanted to make, I think we'll, we can wrap things up here. Yeah, um, I think that was a pretty good, uh, yeah. extensive coverage I mean, of ET. I, yeah, I, 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 I've had a great time chatting about ET with you guys. Uh, thank you very <laughs> much for joining us, David. Like, so, like, this was, yeah, like, as enjoyable as I was hoping it would be. Yeah. It's been a blast. Thank you for having yeah. me. It's been an honour. And uh, yeah, it's nice to be part of this new podcast. And yeah, I just uh, uh, I look forward to hearing the, the full thing back and, and listening back to uh, the highlights of the ET ride again. <laughs> 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 and we'll, we'll, we'll see you whenever we do the Jurassic Park business, whenever that Yeah, uh, I think we'll oh, definitely yeah, have to get so you back for, yeah. for a couple of the Jurassics, I reckon. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Uh, Count me in for that, please. Speaking of the Jurassics, where can where can the good people find you if they uh, uh, feel so inclined to check out Jurassic Collectibles? Well, they can go to youtube.com uh, forward slash Jurassic Collectibles. Uh, you can Google our Twitter. I think it's uh, at Jurassic Collect. Uh, same with our Instagram. And there's a facebook.com forward slash Jurassic Collectibles as well. So you can find us all on there. And uh, we try to post uh, Jurassic World and Jurassic Park content. And uh, my big thing is is Jurassic Park stuff because I love the original. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Uh, well, thank you again, David. And this thank this you. has been our episode on uh, ET the Extraterrestrial. Uh, our first like pr- like I say at the top, our first like mega big one. And uh, our our next episode is also going to be on another 
definitive big one in, in my eyes and quite possibly one of my favorite of the whole bunch as well and that is joe dante's 1984 film gremlins and as always if you don't have it on disc and fancy watching the film ahead of time along with us um it is available to stream for those of you that have a sky go or now tv subscription or you can rent or buy digitally from chile rakuten tv amazon google play youtube microsoft store apple tv and sky store well, we know the Christmas season has passed, so Gremlins might feel a little a little bit past its time, but Gremlins are for life, not just for Christmas, um, as we all know. <laughs> uh, if you have any thoughts you want to share with us, uh, please tweet us at ramblinamblin on Twitter, um, or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. Share any thoughts about Gremlins, uh, any thoughts about Amblin in general. Just say hi, whatever. We'll, uh, we'll give you a shout out on the podcast. Yeah, perfect. And yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see you next time for Gremlins. And thank you again, David, for joining us. And we look forward to welcoming you back in the future. Thank you. Uh, thank, you as al- thank you as always, Josh, as well. Always a pleasure thank to you, see Andrew. you and over, over a webcam for these things. One day soon, hopefully we can <laughs> and, see uh, in person and embrace one another. One day. <laughs> Coming soon, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, thank you all for listening. And we look forward to welcoming you back next time for our episode on Gremlins. Goodbye.